bit of a different one for you today. We thought it's been 200 episodes. Say that again, social... Eve. Say that again. How many? 200. <laughs> 200 yeah, episodes. Yeah, 200. Which works out, what, four years? It's been a long time. It's been a long, long time. So we thought, what better way to celebrate this milestone than to take a little look back on some of our favorite moments so far. Kel and I have both picked out a couple of clips from our favorite guests, times that we've learned something particularly interesting and things that we want to reiterate and share with you. So in case you haven't listened to all of these, maybe a, a good chance to catch up on those episodes as well and those guests. I know we have some fantastic nuggets coming up. Yeah, 200th episode, so we've made it, well, it's an extra long one, but uh, it covers so many different angles, uh, so many different brands. If you're, if you're an avid listener, you'll see we, we speak to so many different people, and on this episode, we've got clips from TikTok, Meta, Thursday Dating, Weetabix, Pinterest, so many more. It's a bit of a crash course, isn't it, in like what you can learn from all these incredible brands. This we've just picked out the best bits for the you. The best marketing tutorial you'll ever hear. The little asterisk by the side of it, just Big some It's it's a good one. It's a very good one. It's a good one. It's Happy a long one. Two hundredth episode, Social Minds. So first up, I want to take you right back to the start of 2022, where we spoke to Louise Richardson from Pinterest all about the Pinterest Predicts report. In 2021, you got eight out of ten predictions correct, right? Yeah, great yeah. hit rate. I mean, it is really, again, we talk about the fact that when, when we looked into what comes true, you kind of don't want to. <laughs> There's part of you that's like, I'm not I'm not sure I want to see this data. But, you know, <laughs> if you think of, of the last couple of years, it's been the least predictable um, couple of years mm. on, on record. And so, yeah, the, the kind of 80% hit rate is really exciting for us um, and, and really exciting for brands, you know, that brands can actually take this data and, that, and it's really actionable. So they're not necessarily, you know, pinning their flag to something that won't happen. We know that, that that there's so many examples of that littered through marketing history. But but yeah, it's really, really exciting for us. We were quite surprised last year where travel searches didn't really diminish. So you would expect that given that we couldn't travel anywhere, that actually travel would be something that we'd see a huge, huge dip in. But actually, I think it's the mindset of pinners that that means that we're always looking forward. So pinners, that's what we call the over 400 million people that come to Pinterest every month. And they're always looking ahead. So actually, there's kind of a mix of very practical things, like I said, like there's less home office stuff. There's less... Mm -hmm. Uh, homeschooling stuff, obviously, in this year's report. But really looking forward, seizing the day, all of those kind of things that we talked about before, really that there hasn't been much um, much of a change in, in the mindset of the things that people are looking for. I think that one thing that we love about these trends is that they might have one entry point. So one one great one is um, movie night at home. That's not just about a projector and what I'm going to watch. That's about what I'm going to wear, what I'm going to eat, um, oh, wow. how I'm going to redecorate my house to to kind of make this movie night at home. Like what kind of decorations might I have? So it's it's actually one entry point for a mood or a, a theme actually kind of sits across lots of different use cases across your life so that that's really cool yeah that's crazy it's like a full well I can, I can get it because obviously there's nothing else to do but turning that into a full event seems you know pre-pandemic seemed a crazy thing to do you just got to the cinema obviously you know yeah you can see yeah. why well actually one of the trends this year that I adore is alt bashes we've seen these trends you know 
things like um, in the US, Friendsgiving or Friends Christmas, like the, these are trends that mm-hmm. have been bubbling up for a, for a little while. But I just I, I adore the idea that you're going to have a divorce party, all of those kind of alt bashes that are coming up. So yeah, that's it, it's a really, really, really nice trend. And, and I'm definitely leaning into it. I think that everything I do next year is going to be an excuse for a party. Yeah, that was a great episode. The reason I chose that clip is one, I wanted to start on that, a nice sort of light-hearted, fun um, start to this episode. But I don't think Pinterest Predicts report is as well used as it should be. Now, when we were talking about that episode, um, or when we we're going through the episode, I mean, the amount of data in there and how true it seems to be, you know, eight out of 10 of the predictions they made came true in 2021. So be interesting to see in 2022. But I just love that episode. I just thought it was great fun. Yeah, Louise was great. And I think... It'll be within the next couple of months that they'll be looking at um, how many of those predictions came true uh, because it was around this time last year. And I can't remember exactly the month we, re- we recorded, but they do prepare this sort of a few months in advance. So once it starts getting into like late autumn, they'll definitely be um, looking at predictions for next year. Yeah. And then they pull it from January. They literally, January, they literally yeah. start in January. Yeah. Yeah. So they're, they're probably already making predictions about next year. But I'll tell you something, we used the um, Ancestral Eats piece mm. in uh, like a concept pitch a few weeks ago, went down an absolute treat. Um, and I do think, yeah, it's such a, a bit of an untapped trove of resource there for just sort of your campaign inspiration to look exactly. at like, you know, if it's relevant to your category, it's like such an easy win there. But also, uh, you know, if it's things like, like one of them was like Hellenistic Revival, which is like the aesthetic of like Greek mythology and things like mm. that, um, which I absolutely love. And I have been seeing in sort of like home decor, like things you can buy. But that's sort of an aesthetic that any brand or any category could bring into like their advertising or like just you know their, their assets, things like that, just things that you know the audience is appreciating at the moment, regardless of um, what industry or sector you're in. Yeah, I found it interesting how the, the trends, they obviously like relate to consumer psychology or how people are acting in their life you know for example the yeah the sort of the home cinema sort of thing in the pandemic Mm. you know it it reflects how society is and it's such a strong tool you know to be able it almost gives you a head start on every other competitor if they're not using um the report so just wanted to put it to the top of your list really make sure you're using it which ones out of the report do you think have come true already have you seen any of them pop up uh, I think alt bashes might be a good one. Yeah. This is uh, a bit of a joke, but one of my friends uh, recently got an IUD fitted and she wanted to celebrate that with a party. <laughs> we didn't do it, but it was very much like, you know, when everyone else is getting married and having babies, like, where's our celebration? Yeah. <laughs> it's going to have one for that. Curved sofas is one. I remember that. And I've mm. definitely seen loads of those. Like, sort of architecture. Like architecture. Where there's like pet furniture. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the, there was so many of them. Go back and have a look at it as well. It's, it's a great report. Um, the jalapeno jam, that's definitely yeah. come to fruition. You see, and that's like the Induja. You've seen the jalapenos in rose? Yes, I have. There well, you go. Uh, they should have predicted yeah. that. They were close. close. Not far off. Anyway, let's see what next year throws up from this year. And uh, yeah, I'm sure there'll be some interesting ones again in that report little bit of a tone change now but we're going to hear from Claire Hardacre who if you listen to that episode was uh, talking all about sort of the rise in like trolling and abuse online but also importantly how social media managers um, can deal with that and she had some brilliant advice throughout but this is a bit that really stuck with me. 
it cannot be overstated. The gamification of social media is really powerful in this sort of driving towards whether it's, you know, really funny content or really outrageous content, extremes of content. So whether it's because it's through the trending topics list, because something is very popular and it's risen to the top of the trending topics list, whether it's because uh, the algorithm is pushing popular content at you. So in the Twitter timeline, now you get content randomly pushed at you. I keep getting basketball. I have no interest in basketball, but stuff keeps uh, <laughs> surfacing because lots of people are suddenly just liking these random tweets. Between people getting lots of likes, clout chasing specifically is a really serious problem. It distorts the effect so that you get this very small instance that gets warped right to the front of everyone's perception and more ordinary stuff gets pushed to the back. It basically can turn what would otherwise be a really small matter into this huge bonfire. So maybe a small unfortunate thing has happened and next thing everyone is is on board that now they're all like debating or arguing about oh. it. So one of the really serious problems, of course, is deliberate clout chasers. So you've got your clout chasing accounts who, you know, they might be um, retweeting, for instance, on Twitter, they might be retweeting content from, oh, look what this awful thing that this brand did. So um, a recent example was Harvard supposedly sent out a rejection letter to a student. Um, and the, I think the the basis of the rejection was supposedly because of the way that they'd been tweeting on the uh, on the internet prior to that, and so they'd withdrawn this offer. It was completely fake, but the that satisfaction of outrage just overwhelmed most people's precautions to check and see whether that was in fact real. Loads of people retweeted it. Lots of clout chasing accounts retweeted the content without even attributing it to the original account. When it was shown to be fake, the original account deleted the tweet, but all of the retweets, all of the recreations of that content exist, and people don't go back to check and see what the reality of the story is. Yeah. So that lives on, and we have lots of examples of that with many of the brands where, you know, some completely spurious complaint, this completely fake thing that never happened has been tweeted or published or whatever. And that story just boils on and on and on forever because people are chasing that clout, they're chasing that impact. The interesting thing to me about that bit was, so Claire does a lot of work with social media platforms like the big tech firms. They, uh, She's one of the people that they invite in to headquarters and ask uh, for her opinions when they're making sort of like safeguarding features to prevent this kind of behavior. Uh, but something we discussed sort of in depth in that episode was the way that these platforms are actually built to validate some of the worst parts of human nature. And that is the entire business model. So the way that these extreme emotions and behavior f fuel abuse, um, you know, like we say emotion drives action on social. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of the rule, like the bigger the emotion you aim to incite, the more shares, the more likes you're going to get. And obviously, we know that skews negative as well. Um, but that goes beyond getting people to sort of respond to your adverts. It's also, like Claire said there, about that, that outrage that we just love to love. So it was, you know, maybe a little bit depressing, but it tells you that the, the problem really is sort of built in. And I do think a bit of food for thought. If we want to be more ethical as marketers, should we instead be looking at reintroducing new ones and actually think, you know, where, where are times that we might be fueling this sort of extreme emotion, extreme behavior, this very black and white thinking and stop saying things like emotion drives action when we're on the speaker circuit. I remember something that our old creative director, Tim, told me. He was talking about brand love um, and he didn't really agree with it. You know, the idea of like, if you're, you know, shopping for a box of cereal, you're going to pick something up because you like love that brand or you're going to pass up another one because they've done something that's really pissed you off. And actually, like most of the times when you walk around the shops and you buy something, it's because like you've got a craving. You thought it looked cool. It's on offer. Uh, it's just a bit nice. Like yeah. he was like, bring back things being just nice. I think I do feel like we're due a bit of a 
a resurgence for like these less extreme emotions basically yeah you put it very eloquently there i was gonna say god i hate clout chasers <laughs> I, really, I was going to say, it, take a drink every time we said clout in that episode. <laughs> I mean, they are everywhere now, and I think Twitter seems to be quite a negative place. Um, well, Twitter has the worst reputation, but yeah. I remember, well, so Claire had signed like about 50 NDAs, so there was like a lot of stuff I don't think she could say, but some stuff I was gleaning from her, like facial mm. expressions, because I said that, I was like, Twitter's probably got the worst reputation for mm -hmm. it, or had historically, even though I don't think they have the worst problem now, I'm not sure. Hmm, well, maybe, maybe it's up there. But yeah, her eyebrow was sort of twitching as if to be like, I know something. But of course, the platforms aren't going to come out and be like, we have this many trolls on the platform. Yeah, the, the, the trouble is the platforms will always try and do the minimum possible to try and act like they are sorting it. But ultimately, it's not in their interest to cull that, I don't think, um, which is obviously a huge, huge problem uh, when it comes to trolling. Um, we have seen measures taken and that, that debate about, you know, getting your passport or your credentials will always rumble on. Uh, to kind of, you know, fully identify yourself rather than fake accounts that get set up. I think on, on Twitter, especially at the moment, I just see so many accounts who, yeah, the, the, take a drink, the clout chasers, um, who, you know, they don't they don't put anything out there themselves. They just retweet fake news over and over and over again. And as, as Claire said in that clip, you know, there are people out there who will start these either vicious rumours or really look for something to complain about and then everyone will jump on it for the sake of jumping on it yeah. so well this is the thing that's like you get a couple of bad actors but then yeah. the rest of the movement is everyone else it, it really is this sort of mass behavior that social media is built to accommodate because you know we can blame it on like the odd troll who might start the thing but everyone loves the thing everyone loves watching the thing mm -hmm. everyone sat there with popcorn if they're not hitting retweet they're watching it they're talking about it yeah. we i mean look at the the drama this week that's happened with the uh, the Venice Film Festival have you seen it where Harry Styles did not oh, yes. spit on Chris Pine but yeah, everyone said he did it's just yeah, mad it's, yeah. how yeah, things people, can get blown up want that because I think there's something in society where I think boredom takes you know take the amount of time that people spend on phones now mm. that's the theatre for them Yeah. so they want things to happen and if they can create that narrative that is happening then you know it satisfies a craving from their side but yeah it's not it's not great. We just um, want to feel something. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, if we all a little bit nicer, I think the, the world would be a better place on social for sure. I do think marketers have an important role to play, definitely, in terms of like what kind of behaviour we're encouraging and just the way that we look at these platforms. Because I was like going back to what Tim said, if that, that extreme emotion thing doesn't happen or it doesn't play out when you're talking about like, real life behavior and offline sales so actually the only reason marketers and brands are playing up to this is because we're pandering to the rules of these platforms mm. and we're so bothered about you know how to make wins on there when actually it's not like that's not how people behave you know anywhere else and that kind of behavior wouldn't be rewarded that way anywhere else so yeah i think when we should be catering to our customers and our audience we're actually catering to the platforms and actually we should be thinking how we want to not just put them first but also do right by the communities that we want our brands to be a part of do better yeah so let's move on to weetabix with gareth turner another great episode if i do say so myself but gareth you know he's got such a breadth of experience and we covered so much in this there is a segment in this that i really liked about rephrasing and psychology again but the way it boosts creativity so take a listen we have worked very hard in the marketing department to develop a a bolder approach to marketing to do marketing properly as i said you know to test and learn and to embed and be data driven but also to have a a bolder approach to marketing in 
our creative and our media choices. So we've done that in in a few ways. We've done that by trying to create a, a safer space for the brave stuff to happen. So a few sort of nuggets that we've we've done. We have we've tried to use a yes if approach. So when, when we did the beans on bix thing, right? We might talk about that later. Right? <laughs> um, but uh, the agency and the brand team would come to us and say, "What about this as an idea?" We say, "Well, yes, we can do that if." If it doesn't look too disgusting, if we've got the engagement with the other brands, if we think they're going to respond to us, if we can pre-prepare some responses, etc. So we have a yes-if approach. It's less motivating to say, well, no, because. Um, the same outcome, yes, we can do that if we uh, can show it doesn't look dis- disgusting. Yeah, I like that. Um, it would be easy to say, well, no, we won't do that because I don't think it, we, it will look nice. One is One just crushes you. No one's bringing you an idea they think is rubbish. People are bringing you an idea because they've invested in it themselves. So uh, one would crush that idea and makes people less likely to bring stuff to you in the future. Another one emboldens people and gives a coaching opportunity. And sometimes that idea won't work. And sometimes the if, if you can show me, it will go down the, the production lines, for example, for a new product. Well, okay, that person might go away and find it can't go down the production line. Mm-hmm. And then they've learned something yeah. for themselves rather than me say, no, 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 that will, that will never happen. That will never go down. We also talk about uh, what's the worst that could happen. So in, in that, again, in that Beans on Bix uh, tweet, you know, what, really, what's the worst thing that could happen there? The worst isn't that bad. There's no um, legal implications for that. There's no, no one's going to jail. There's no, the the Weezbix business isn't going to fall to its knees because we did that one tweet, but it, it might just kick off. And the, the other thing we've done is work to try and create some frameworks for people to work within, to give them the, to coin a phrase, freedom within a framework. So that is around... Uh, giving our team some legal training to say what is within our free, our framework of, of sign off, what's in our accountability, our authority to sign off, what would need to go to a legal team, what would need to go to a food regulatory team. So we've we've created these frameworks so people do feel trained and emboldened and encouraged and coached and all these things that uh, make Weetabix marketing department, I hope, a safe place for people to have ideas where the bold seems less scary. Our job as leaders is to make people um, empowered and enthused and encouraged and supported and all these things to to have great ideas. That's that's what we're paid to do. Now, coming from a creative side, you can see why I love that clip. The yes, if approach was fantastic. It was actually the first time I heard it. And, and ever since we recorded the episode, I've been implementing that since in my kind of personal life. So yes, if what it does is it reframes an answer. So if you say no, I mean, I hate the word no in business anyway, but especially on creative. You come up with that idea and move no. You're probably not going to come up with another idea because you've been shot down. Someone goes, I like it. You know, if we can do this, then it might work. That's a reframe and straight away I'm going, right, okay, that could work, that could work. Might come back with another idea and go, well, well if that works, I'll do this. And that's how creative goes, right? You, you'd see something and then you kind of go off a little tangents. Um, and that yes, if approach is brilliant for that. Another technique that, that we didn't actually talk about in that clip was, you know, you've missed something or you're a little bit late on something. Instead of starting with a sorry, it's good to apologize, but it's a negative connotation. You've done something wrong. So it's sorry, I am late or sorry, I've missed this. Instead of saying sorry, say thank you. So thanks for your patience. Thanks for waiting. You know, reframing is such a powerful tool. If you can reframe a negative into a positive, 
just think it's something that will change your kind of uh, professional your conversations and hopefully boost creativity as you go no definitely I think there's a lot of um it starts sort of started off as like it became a bit of a trend which you know it's it's got some merits right this idea of like knowing when to say no is like it got popular because it's like knowing or like having the power to say I don't think that's a good idea when people normally would like disagree with something or know something was a mistake in their head and just like not say anything mm-hmm. um so it came from that but then what you've ended up with is just so many people like you said saying no because they think then it's like the bold thing to do or they think they're being clever or interesting or different when actually they just like playing devil's advocate and it can it can turn into a bit of a negative pattern can't it when you're you're at the point of a creative brainstorm is to get all these ideas out in the open um and that more than often or definitely should include the the bad ideas the Mm -hmm. crap ideas you need to get them out before you dismiss them before you find something better um so i think when people say no to everything um it is a a better thing to do to reframe it and uh the the whole yes if approach is more like saying what is that phrase where it's like uh innocent until proven guilty it just reminds me of that that (laughs) it's like it's always always assume the best uh so it's always a yes but you have to make sure you're looking out for those those instances where something might pose a problem and just making sure all your bases are covered so it's yes we can do it if we sort this out first mm-hmm. um yeah it's knowing sort of what you have to fix before you go ahead with the plan instead of saying oh well we can't do that because of this it's very like solution based isn't it exactly and it's not yeah you're not looking for problems from the the off you're looking you, to, to solve them it's yeah. solutions not problems yeah and there needs to be more of that, I think, in, in business. Um, there are some people who do get stuck in ruts and you, you I'm not speaking about anyone personally, but you know, you do meet come across people who just say no to everything and you'll yeah, know, we all you'll know, know, that know who those people are. They're <laughs> yeah. no people. It's like that's the role that they play in meetings, but exactly. actually But it drains you, right? You know, if you go into yeah. a meeting with those people, you know what you're gonna it's almost like you've got a brick wall in front of you. You are yeah. you're not gonna get through it. But if you've got a yes if person who you like going to meetings with and go, you know it might not be the best idea but if we do this it could be a good idea yeah. that, you go into that meeting you're energized and it just feels it's encouraging good. It's, it's positivity not negativity and i think we need a lot more of that there's nothing worse than having to like argue for everything and <laughs> try and like persuade exactly. and manipulate that one person i'm just like yeah. oh yeah give it a rest more but, yes ifs yeah more yes more yes ifs less no buts now, this next snippet is one from one of my favorite episodes of the year, probably. Uh, and maybe one of my favorites of all time. Big claim. Maybe in the wow, top 10. Top that is 10. a big claim. Um, so it's Orlando Wood from System One Group. And he's talking about the work that he did, uh, the extensive work that he did with the IPA. And he was just one of those people who could articulate everything he was thinking uh, brilliantly. Uh, and everything that he was thinking was brilliant in itself. Um, he had a hell of a mind and it was a real pleasure to speak to him. And we learned a lot. Some of the features I've looked at, which I think you could map broadly to the right or left hemisphere, you know, that the right hemisphere is interested in the living. It's interested in things that, that move, you know, animals, people. It's interested in uh, the way that they connect with each other. It's more open to sort of, it's more interested in social bonding, basically. Uh, it's interested in the novel. So thing, I mean, things that are new to it, you know, so it's alert to, to, to new stuff. And, it, you know, it can it can deal with contradictions. So the two things might be two opposing thoughts might be true, seem to be true at the same time, which means it understands metaphor and humour. So you're starting to get an impression uh, straight away when I say some of these things of the kind of advertising that is of interest to the presencing right brain that presents it, you know, presents the world to us. And that's mm. advertising with 
character, you know, with incident, with place, those sorts of things really important for holding attention, capturing and holding attention, but also eliciting an emotional response. What we've found, um, and what I've shown working with others, is that there are features that are associated, that you might say are associated with the left brain, things like split screen effects, this sort of me telling you something, you know, uh, voiceover or words on the screen, abstraction, so looking at stuff really close up, you know, so just details of a pack mm -hmm. shop, for instance, as you mentioned, you know, really product specific stuff. Also rhythm, freeze frame effects, so freezing things in time, so you don't get that sense of live time, which the right brain gives us. Uh, this stare, this facial frontality, you know, those left hemisphere features push people away and, and leave you feeling not very good. And they don't mm -hmm. map to business effects as impressively as those right brain features in the, you know, at all. Yeah. I mean, you talk about uh, Gareth's philosophy changing the way that you've worked since speaking to him. That was this for me. I've never had a moment where after speaking to Orlando about this, I've sort of came downstairs and felt like I was observing our work and everyone and like the behavior in the industry as like a third party and seeing absolutely everything that he told us not to do was being done. Mm. Uh, so there's no other episode more than this one that I've been shoving down everyone's throats, literally, um, to help sort of implement these learnings. Uh, to essentially improve the effectiveness of our video advertising. Things that Orlando said, um, and that he's tracked with the IPA since about 2008, which is when advertising effectiveness has been declining since, is due to things like that abstraction, so close-up product shots, those sort of 2D like text, big text voiceovers, like like stock rhythmic soundtracks that we see everywhere this you know whenever there's a person in the shot it's close up on their face and they're looking right down the camera at you all of those things are turning people off uh, and he said if someone's been watching your advert for four seconds or more chances are it's a right-brained advert uh, he also said that the kind of advertising that right-brained advertising works better for, so that's what you want, not that uh, sort of left-brained uh, left flat stuff, is for brand building. And then he's got a whole bunch of research that showed um, the kind of stuff you need to be doing on social media, brands like digital brands, is that brand building side. So actually, what, what we're doing on social and what we're seeing a lot of is the wrong thing to do. Even worse than that is these uh, these like video trends uh, that have been popularized by social because they're fast to make and they're cheap to make, uh, but they're not actually working. It's being seen so much on social. Advertisers and agencies are now starting to replicate that in TV advertising where it absolutely mm -hmm. doesn't work. Mm -hmm. um, so it's it's a bit of an epidemic and something that I think not enough people know about. Well, firstly, what a guy Orlando is genuinely so I, smart <laughs> I think we're both saying like jaw, jaw hitting the floor I like, love what? talking to people like that though I love yeah. talking to like absolute nerds in their industry I love it like yes like articulate all of your thoughts for me like nerd yeah. out I yeah. love people who are that passionate and clever yeah it just felt like we're in like the best anatomy psychology tutorial lesson you've ever been in mm. um, and especially obviously with us being in uh, market and advertising the way it was so uh directed towards that so you, you learn about learned about the brain but then like you just said there you know related it back to marketing oh, again it almost feel, felt like a bit of a cheat code like you're understanding your consumers way deeper than probably they understand themselves because you know if you ask me whether i'm well before the pod if you'd asked me where i was left or right brained probably wouldn't have been able to tell you but now i know that i'm 
a lot more conditioned to right brain just from the way I do things to do. I have elements of left brain. I hope I've got both sides working. No, it's, it's, it's absolutely <laughs> but, both. I mean, like, yeah. he, he did this part in the uh, presentation for Lemon, one of his books that we were speaking about in the episode, um, where if you ask the left brain to draw a flower, yeah. it's, like, dead flat and, like, spiky, and then he asked the right one to do it, and it's, like, something else. And it's only when you put them together that it's right. So, actually, when he's speaking about um, that, that balance that's needed, relate that back to marketing, you do need both, but it's, like, for... Um, that sort of uh, activation and like conversion stuff, it's it's okay to have left brain. But your brand building, your your long form, your hero content should appeal to the right brain. Uh, so say if you did like a hero video for like a branded content series, that needs to be right brained. What you need to see is living things interacting with each other and, you know, a real life situation. Then you cut downs that you're going to boost and get people to convert from. It's okay if they're a bit left brained, like that's fine. But you need that balance. Yeah, great choice there, Eva. <laughs> you know, you said that was one of your, what was your favourite ever episodes? Um, top 10, top 10. It was definitely one of those, uh, I mean, we have favourites for different reasons. We've spoken to so many people who are like really good at what they do. Mm-hmm. And some people, well, some episodes you enjoy because, uh, you know, they're really like friendly to talk to. But Orlando was one of those ones uh, who I, I really felt like I learned something. And like you said, like when you start implementing it in your work after the fact, you know yeah. they've made an impact. You know it's a good one, yeah. We'll talk about favourite episodes. So let's move on to Thursday, Thursday Dating, where we spoke to Matt McNeil Love. Now, you really like that name. Mr. Love. For the, for the <laughs> it's just that. so fitting for like the founder of a dating app. I think it's brilliant. Yeah. Well, a little bit about how this came around. So Thursday were really causing big waves at the time when we recorded this pod uh, and we kind of made a beeline and, and really wanted to get them on the pod and to it kind of talk about what they were doing and how they were doing it. And it's exactly what Matt covered. So here we go with Thursday dating. In terms of what we've learned go from all the stuff we've done in the past. It's really important when you do these stunts that there is like a clear end goal. So if it's downloads, which for us, it's not really because it's really hard to get downloads from effectively a piece of cardboard or a billboard. It's pretty, I, I think it's pretty challenging. But what you can do is get people to talk about it, as you quite rightly said, and that then generates downloads because then it becomes a, I've seen this cool advert or marketing stunt to a friend's recommendation, which is so much more powerful as we all know. Um, and so that's always the focus. And the way we do that is we try and make all of our stunts have sort of three things, humor, relatable, and shock. And if you can get those three coupled in a way that doesn't offend people too badly or too much, you have to take a bit of risk. And you people get offended at almost everything, at anything. So you have to accept that you will get some hate. If you can get those three things in, it, it's such a killer combination. I think people in these big cities are, you know, they're busy. A lot of it's head down, all they're focusing is on what they're doing. So if they see something that's out of place, which causes a bit of shock, they, they cannot help themselves but to be like, and then when they go to the office, they sit down, they, have a, they do their emails in the morning, then they'll go to have a coffee at 11 or whatever o'clock. The first thing they do is say, to, mate, have you seen this? Oh yeah, send that to me, let's have a look. And then it, and it sort of does the rounds on yeah. Instagram, or, uh, Instagram or, or uh, WhatsApp groups. It's really hard for us to track, but what's worked well for us is in particular, we had eight guys and girls. No, it was eight guys, actually. Um, all paid student actors. We put up a brief and said, look, we want you to go to the busiest train stations in London wearing a sign that says, I cheated on my girlfriend on Thursday and this is my punishment. And the only difference about there was no download Thursday or the only thing was, was we made the Y of our logo look like the Y of our, our actual logo on the, on the, the handwritten mm. board. And what it does is drives conversation because people are like wait hang on is that Thursday wait there's no club though mm. maybe it's not and it creates yeah. this like 
drive of people talking about it, being like, that's got to be Thursday. If you plug, and we've tried it, we've tried everything, well, not everything, but we've tried a lot of things. If you plug, download this, download, you, the second you use that word, or apply here, or whatever, you've lost them. Yes, I love that clip from Matt there. If you know anything about me, I, I'm a bit of a sucker for stunts. So Thursday completely got me when they started doing their uh, sort of cardboard cutouts around London, the signs that we mentioned there. Um, again, in the episode, we talked about how they set up a, a market store with physical dates, selling dates. He sold a thousand dates and said, you can go on dates, all the rest. The camel. The camel. So the camel came out after the episode, but we were talking about the camel in the episode. Um that actually relates back to what we were talking about before, about the trolling episode, that I do think people jumped on that for the sake of jumping on it. I don't think mm. it was outrageous. But, you know, there's clear, there clear reason to it because what Matt mentioned there is the three reasons for doing a stunt or the three values that you've got to live by or you're trying to evoke is humour, relatability and shock. So, I mean, the camel had the shock factor, right? You don't expect a camel walking through Hammersmith. <laughs> <laughs> it's not, nope. you know, exactly. So, yeah. And in a way, I, I thought it was quite funny, but everything you do is ground in these three values. So, um, you know, th they've had huge success with uh, these kind of PR stunts. So key learnings from this were if you're going to do a PR stunt, if you're going to go out there and try something different, it needs to be funny, relatable, or it needs to have the shock factor. One of those three, and I thought that was great advice. I'd never heard that before. Yeah, what's nice listening to that clip now in hindsight as you said, we we spoke to Thursday first when they were uh, really coming up. Yeah. Uh, so they were they were just getting really popular, and I've obviously been watching what they've been doing since, and they've really been going from strength to strength, and they've expanded into more cities now. That in real life events uh, are going viral on TikTok, you know, completely organic UGC. Um, so it seems to be going really really well for them, and it's nice to sort of look back at what we were hearing from from Matt at the time. It's like their their game plan, their strategy, like what was going on at the time. Now actually seeing that come to fruition and see the results, we have that sort of justification for it now. Like it's been proven to work. Um, what they're doing uh, is working wonders for them. So it's definitely a brand or um, yeah, a company that you should keep keeping your eye on. Um, and I think a lot of what he had to say in that episode around, um, so obviously they got a lot of their original like hype without any budget, right? So they were just doing off uh, yeah. PR stunts and LinkedIn posts. And then they were siphoning some budget into like their paid stuff on Instagram. And I think just what Matt had to say around his thoughts on that, saying that like some startups probably overspending when actually if you know how to play that game in terms of the emotions you're appealing to, like you just said, Cal, mm -hmm. um, it's probably a smarter and cheaper way to do it. Yeah, I have seen a few imitations go around, but it's one of those, you know, once you, oh, you yeah. kind of start seeing it, it's a little bit. But then as... Uh, Flattery. Matt, well, yeah, but Matt also spoke about, you know, the cardboard cutouts, and it's not something original. It's just something they managed to have success with and people have started copying that. So I, I'm, strong, I'm a real strong believer in that nothing is original. There's always some element of something taken from somewhere. Um, have you seen the camel before? Was that, has that been done before? Is that original? You're going to start seeing all manner of yeah, wild mate. animals and farmyard animals Why? walking around cities But that's now. the thing. You've seen animals in advertising before. Yeah. Maybe not, you know, the alligators around cities. And stuff, but you've seen it. You've seen that before. They've just taken it to another level with the yeah. camel. So some, something always sparks something else. So, yeah, I'm interested to see uh, where people take the sort of cardboard sign sort of thing and how they develop that or where they take the camel, or the dates, or whatever it may be. But uh, yeah, big up Thursday, really love what they're doing over there. And yeah, it sounds like they're going from strength to strength. Now we're going to hear from the one and only Zoe Skaman, who aside from the multiple things she taught us about the metaverse and Web3, one of my favourite episodes, because 
Um, she gave Cal a right telling off. How many episodes <laughs> are your favourites? Yeah, she did, didn't she? Yeah. Well, this is the point of this yeah. celebration, Cal. I'm picking, I've picked my favourites. Oh, so, yeah, true, yeah, I am going to say, probably in front of every clip, this one's one of my favourites. They're all my favourites. But yeah, I love that moment where I can't remember what you said now. Did you came choose out a telling off clip? And, uh, no, I don't think I did. <laughs> Zoe said, no, that's not correct. And I just love that in a person. I love that in a person. Uh, but this next clip uh, was one of those like, oh shit moments for me. Uh, so take a listen. We've got a gigantic generation of gamers who are growing up and already buying virtual fashion goods. You know, those are skins in games. So, you know, if you're in Fortnite or if you're in Roblox or Call of Duty or, um, I don't know, Battlefield or Apex Legends or whatever it is, you are already exchanging real money for virtual fashion by buying skins. So, you know, in Apex Legends, you buy gun charms and gun skins. You know, in Fortnite, you can buy, you know, dance moves. You can buy, you know, different outfits. You can be a celebrity. You can be The Rock. You can be LeBron. You know, you can be Rick from Rick and Morty if you want to. You know, in Call of Duty, you know, you're buying different kind of skins and aspects there and sort of weapons, etc. And I think, you know, we are already primed to exchanging real money for virtual money for virtual goods, but we don't own them. You know, going back to what I said previously, you cannot take a banana avatar outfit outside of Fortnite and use it somewhere else. You can't take a gun charm from Apex League of Legends and use it in Call of Duty. You know, so actually that interoperability is not there. So when it comes to kind of virtual fashion and, and the sort of value of virtual fashion, the minute we start to open up the ability for some of those skins and some of those different bits to travel, even if they travel into your social profile. So if I buy, you know, a virtual outfit in Fortnite, for example, but that also gives me the ability to wear it as a lens and take a photo of real me wearing a digital outfit in Instagram and Snapchat, and I can use it on those filters, then that starts to increase the value for me. So I think a lot of people are kind of going, I would never want to own digital fashion. And my pushback is you probably already do. You just don't see it like that because it's a game skin. The Balenciaga limited edition hoodie in Fortnite, I can't even remember how much that was, but I think it was like, you know, below $20, if that. And so, you know, what you're doing is you're also kind of democratizing access to the brand name. And from a brand perspective, a lot of them are loving that because again, as you said, you know, that price barrier is there IRL and people can't actually buy it. If you're 15, you probably can't go and buy a Balenciaga hoodie in real life, but you can wear one in Fortnite and you can still have that kind of that piece as well. Have you got any access to kids who are gamers at the moment? If you have... Uh, go and speak to them or go and speak to their parents. And it is a weekly or if not, you know, multiple times a week occurrence. Can I have some more V-Bucks so that I can buy this new Fortnite skin? Can I have some more Roblox so I can buy this kind of, you know, Gucci hat so I can wear it on my avatar? It is common. So I think that's the other thing as well. You know, if you're not a gamer or if you're not exposed to teenagers who are gamers, you are stuck in that bubble of, I just don't think this happens you know, microtransactions within games are a multi-billion dollar economy. And that's the bit that cured the scepticism in me when it comes to uh, NFTs. The question we'd asked her then was, what is the tangible value, if there is any, of having virtual goods? So why on earth would I buy something that I don't get to have in real life? And the way she explained it then was, not only is, uh, you know, there's an argument for like that status and the price barrier being lower, et cetera, but actually all the examples she was able to give of instances where this is already happening. So it's not a hypothetical thing where we'd say like, well, let's debate why anyone would ever want to do this. It's like, let's look at why they're already doing it and how they're doing it and what those applications are. I think 
honestly, there's so, uh, there was then and there still is now a lot of misinformation and a lot of just confusion around the purpose um, of this technology. And I do still think that accessibility and barriers to entry and the language used is so confusing now that, um, you know, all, all of that stuff is acting as a bit of a barrier to get into it and it must be so frustrating for Zoe someone who understands this inside out um watching uh, other people get so confused about it when it must be so simple to her but yeah this as I said really cured me of my skepticism and was the first time I thought okay get it now yeah she did a great job in that in kind of it's almost like a lesson in web three for dummies we were the dummies exactly. at the time. and I said to her you know before we started didn't I or like the pre-call we had please explain it to me like I'm five mm, and yeah. I think there's no there's no shame in asking stupid really questions if it helps you learn yeah yeah um Still maybe a little bit sceptical, I've got to say. It's um, only because of that barrier to entry, I think. Yeah, I, it's, think... It's, it's, yeah. I mean, we could go on all day about this and we have done live webinars and uh, loads of chats on this. And, and look, everyone's going to have their opinion. I, it, it definitely is coming. Uh, you know, there's no, there's no doubt about that. I think we got uh, well, excited it's too here, soon. You know, it's, but it's, it's been here for years already, as she, as she mentioned there. Yeah. Uh, in games, it's been here for years. It's just the applications that maybe aren't there yet. Um, What's well, that the infrastructure, isn't it? I think... Well, yeah, yeah, and the accessibility, I think, is a big thing. You know, if if, if yeah. someone, I know it's not targeted necessarily towards, you know, 50 plus, but if they can't access it or, you know, it just needs to be as simple as possible. And at the minute, it's very complicated. But, um, no, I, I, I really like the, the, the clip you chose there. And, um, yeah, the applications that she mentioned there, you know, <laughs> it, it is kind of crazy, but it, it's definitely happening. I've got, I've got friends who are parents and they have children and, you know they are, they do get given money to spend on whether it, even just like a FIFA for example buy it you know it's the same sort of thing you buy in virtual plays you, you can't buy Ronaldo in real life good luck if you can but you know you can buy him in the game for you know twenty quid or whatever it may be you know depending on who's selling but um, it's the same sort of thing you know Gucci hat you know maybe six hundred seven hundred pound yeah and that status symbol she's saying like. If not now, definitely in future is going to transcend that online offline thing. So it's like maybe you can't like afford to look cool strutting around Gucci in the streets. But if you have your Gucci online and if like you really think of that as part of your identity, that's sort of lifting up your status mm -hmm. there. That's a shift, isn't it? Because for us as well, speaking personally, status is real life as in IRL, as mm. Zoe would say. But. For children now, status is also online with the rise of social, with yeah. the rise of Web3. Isn't it game. kind of for us as well? Because it's like, do you take pride so. in your Instagram? I, I bet you I, do. Well, I guess so. Yeah. It's kinda, that. It's, it's literally it. that. Yeah. yeah. So, so it is, but it's taken to a new level. It's now in games. It's now in, you know, it, it's avatars. That's different to your real life words, so to speak. It's your character. It's the same sort of thing in terms of personality and, yeah, persona. But it's, it's so much more digitalized. Um, you know, I was um, was talking to Jake yesterday about why we think that it hasn't sort of, I don't know, I felt like NFTs had fallen off a little bit in terms of public conversation or at least industry conversation. Mm -hmm. And uh, I thought maybe we got excited a little bit too early because everyone was saying it's not going to happen for like 10 years. I'm like, fair enough, let's wait 10 years. But actually, Jake said it's like... <laughs> The reason like there's so much accessibility issues is because it's not just like one place, one sign-in process. Yeah. It's not like you can just sign up and then you're in. It's like there's multiple platforms, multiple technologies you can use to get in there. It's not one size fits all. Also, when you hear the term wallet, like you need a wallet, I think money. And then I think I'm going to have to pay for this. And then it puts you off. Mm -hmm. I think someone needs to like uberfy it. 
where you just make like a, a really slick app with a really good UI. It's dead simple. And signing up to that lets you in all these different places, um, like c- connect it that way. Or like the way that Snapchat made well, Eevee, AR Eevee. so accessible. Like Centralization. Yeah, I know. Well, you just centralize the decentralization. Exactly. So that's the issue with that, I guess. Um, but yeah, you're right. It, it, Someone it, needs to just take charge <laughs> and, and make it easy. Center. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've uh, completely ruined Web3 there, Eve. Congratulations. Maybe I still don't get it. Where's Zoe? Bring her back. <laughs> Should we talk about something you do now? Listen, there's no shame in not understanding things. I'm always learning. No, but that's what that episode was. You're absolutely right. It was a huge lesson for us. If you haven't heard that and you, and you are interested in Web3, go back and have a listen because she was brilliant at making things that are very complicated, as we just mentioned there, very simple. So go back and have a listen to that. Great episode. Um, Eve, something you do know very well, TikTok. You know that one. A bit more familiar. So let's cross to Daniel Butiel, who's the global head of social media at TikTok. Obviously a huge part of the cog at TikTok and covered so many things about the inside of the company, the growth of the company, and mainly about how to stay agile whilst coming up with strategy and creative. You know, I think strategy and playbooks are hugely important because obviously they keep you focused on business goals and, and keep you going in, in the right direction. I think we approach them in, in two different ways at TikTok, long term and, and short term. But I think the way that you execute and, and maintain these playbooks is, is really important, which I'll try and explain. So I think gone are the days where you can have an annual strategy and, you know, you walk away and then you revisit it in, in the next year. I think it's great to have an annual strategy and understand where you want to be in 12 months time. But so many things can change along the way. Uh, and, and, and generally, I think there's three dimensions. There's your customer dimension. So, you know, on the course of this journey to that 12 month, what feedback are you receiving? Is it good or is it bad? Uh, do you need to change your direction accordingly? Um, what's happening with the brand or what's happening with the business? Are there new opportunities or new challenges that you need to pivot and respect in, in the kind of overarching strategy? And, and then especially for us in, in social media, what's happening um, on the landscape? So is there a new format? Is there a new platform? Uh, you know, TikTok is, is fairly new to the scene. Same for Discord. So again, I think annual strategies are important to keep you on track, but pit stops and maintenance along the way is is what will help keep you um, hyper relevant. And, and then quickly, just on the short term, again, kind of similar to that uh, equation I mentioned earlier, I, I think, again, having a loose framework pointing in the right direction is definitely the way to go. But if you over-prescribe, you'll, you'll take people down the path of 1x thinking. So freedom in a framework, which allows 10x thinking, and again, allows you to be agile, nimble, the individual to express themselves, but still going in the right direction. Yeah, so the TikTok episode was all about how TikTok keep things simple. And I really like this train of thought, especially when it comes to being agile. I think you've, you've realized by now when we're talking about, you know, people saying no to things. I really like it when things are kept simple, but then obviously, you know, the original idea is simple, but then are built on to make it complex. So, so taking a look at the strategy play, but there, they do have a six-month playbook in terms of a kind of midterm but they're also so agile that they operate you know day to day week to week which is how things should be again it's keeping it simple too many times i think we see you know brands have a year-long strategy which you do need but they stick by it and it goes right okay you need to do xyz but your day-to-day you know things change in business especially on social media you know tiktok moves so quickly 
Um, that if you're not doing things day to day, then you're doing it wrong. Mm-hmm. One of the things I always come away from when we speak to platforms or when we speak to the marketing teams of platforms themselves is that sort of consistent pressure across all of them to be the best content creators on that platform yes. because they're setting the standard. And so the way they've had to really optimize their output, there's a bit of jargon for you, ironically, because one of the ways they've they've done that is to reduce their jargon internally. Um, and so when you're using like abbreviations on really sort of buzzwordy terms between your team, let's be honest, sometimes people get confused. And when you start confused or when you have that confusion inside, what the hell do you think is going to be put out into the world on the outside? Um, so they really have taken that like simple, humble approach down to just speaking to each other like human beings, um, not, you know, putting too much pressure on themselves in terms of these really complex processes and procedures and removing all that red tape for themselves as well so that they can be that agile uh, because they understand how important it is especially on TikTok they they know that better than anyone uh, so I think if any any brand or marketer is looking to be a bit better on TikTok they might just be um, the place to look first for inspiration uh, and definitely listen back to that episode and see how they do things on the inside because you know I don't need to tell anyone listening that if you want to do something reactive and funny and fast you can't have all of these processes and buzzwords no. and confusion bogging you down you just can't yeah I actually think that's a little bit of a bugbear in mind probably because I come from a sports background where things move quick anyway mm-hmm. and if you go sports market on social things move quick on top of something that's moving minute by minute, second by second. So for me, processes 100% need to be there, but they need to be simple. They need, you know, someone from outside your company needs to walk in a door and understand it. Yeah. And if they it's don't understand it. It's not rocket science it, and you don't have to pretend not, it is. It's not, but the, but there's so, like, if, if you start a business, there's so many temptations to do things as the others have done it. So when TikTok started up, I presume they looked at Facebook, Meta, Insta at the time, Snapchat, and they looked at like how a social media platform was meant to be. And I think the temptation there would have been to go, right, okay, we do this, this, and this. But actually, by the looks of it, they said, no, we're going to keep this completely simple. And it, and it worked. And it's so refreshing. I feel like they looked at Facebook and said, this is what not to we'll do. We'll do the opposite. Yeah. And it's worked. Yeah. And Snapchat now, might be some positive inspo, though. But then who's now copying who? Because short video, Insta, Reels, Instagram's copying YouTube TikTok. shorts. Yeah. So, so now so so they've kind of come in shaking up the room and now the imitators are imitating them as opposed to you know them coming in and imitating to start off with it's always refreshing when people do things differently and um, well, that's how you know they're a leader yeah and i don't think they're phased by it yeah but that simplicity is different because things are so complicated so it's not you know it's not just winging it it's definitely not as you you know as as daniel mentioned there you know, they've got the strategy in place, but they're agile. They're adapting it constantly, but with simplicity. And that goes all the way back down to how they communicate internally. And once you communicate internally like that, you then start expressing that externally to consumers and users, etc. So to me, really refreshing to see how uh, a brand's doing something differently and having huge, huge, huge success with it. Now, you know, I couldn't let this one slide. Of course it's in here. Of course it is. It's our episode with Andrew Bolton, uh, expert copywriter in what, oh, I've said it again, but it is one of my favorites, probably top five this time, more than top 10. I was listening back to the whole thing the other week to pick out this segment to share with you all again. And the whole thing start to finish. I know I'm biased, but he really is brilliant uh, at articulating the point that he came to make, uh, which is the importance of copywriters and how you can use them and how you should be using talented writers in your campaigns, even when you don't need the written word. So take a listen. 
you know, this is very, very anecdotal. I'm really wary of making these big generalizations because I think there's a lot of really, really good practice out there, especially around kind of very content-driven brands and businesses. But I also know of plenty of situations where the person who is writing that content, who are, you know, who are good writers, they're often young writers, they're developing their craft, but they've got a lot of kind of, you know, creativity and they've got a lot of sort of technical skill. They are expected to write and do something else. It's almost like writing is this thing we squeeze in around other duties, mm-hmm. uh, especially in kind of sort of content and social driven stuff. It's your job isn't exclusively to write. It's to write the thing, but then post the thing and monitor the thing and report back on, you know, how the thing was received and, you know, help develop the strategy about what the next thing is going to be. And I, I almost feel, and this is perhaps an old fashioned attitude, but I think it's probably still true that if you're working in writing, if you're working as a copywriter in whatever modern medium that might be in, your job, your only focus, your obsession for that day must be words and writing and the best way to express something and the best way to kind of develop these stories and, and kind of pull together, you know, whether it's an article, whether it's kind of bite-sized social media content, whether it's writing product descriptions on a website, your only focus should be writing because I don't think it's the kind of job you can just do with, with just kind of half of your attention or half of your brain. I think you have to feel like you're a writer and that's what you're here to do and that can that's your only concern and i think as soon as you start to tell people well writing's not a big deal it's not a, you know a thing that you need to spend all your time and focus on i think you're you're straight away you're torpedoing your own content because you're you're not valuing the craft and the creativity and the input of the writer purely by saying to them um, do this but do something else as well here's something that I mean, take a look at what you're doing internally with your writers, whether you are one, whether you're in charge of one, whether you work beside one, whether you're an account manager who, or a project manager who's often putting one on projects and assigning time for them. One of the things that, I don't think it was in that clip then, but one of the things that stood out in that episode with Andrew for me was that it's almost the, the least important part of writing is actually sitting down and putting the words down. Mm. That's like the last thing you do and it's almost the smallest bit of it. It's the thinking beforehand. It's like mapping out that narrative. It's the editing that comes after. And what we so often see is just like an hour put in the diary to do that getting the words down bit. Uh, and the way it's reduced to its most basic function is I think one of the reasons why a lot of times it's, you know, struck off the, the budget list and it's said, all right, well, it's just writing so we can do that, we can handle that but you know you're a sports marketer let me hit you with a sports analogy if i can kick a ball does that make me an athlete no it makes you a footballer does it make me a footballer does it or does it mean (laughs) i've just kicked a ball it's exactly the same if you're typing if you're making words it doesn't make you a writer Uh, and i think that's a distinction that so many people forget to make yeah i'm probably being a bit self-important and stuff right just because i am biased and it is my specialism uh but i mean so i've just basically built a tone of voice from an unnamed brand from scratch Mm. and you don't it's like nobody realized how much that is the foundation for everything else they do online if you don't have that personality if you don't have someone in charge of it nurturing that you know what you write is is the way you sound it's the way that you behave it's it's where everything else stems from if you don't know who you are what the hell are you doing um so the importance of it really can't be understated do you feel lighter now if you got that mic drop do you know what i do yeah yeah, so there's something he's passionate about, <laughs> rightly so, is copywriting. And for me, in terms of underrated functions in a business and an agency, I think copywriting's got to be up there. It's something that actually I didn't know existed before I Neither entered did I. the professional world. Yeah. But the importance, as Andrew said there, of copywriters, they have, I mean, their work 
pretty much has an effect on everything we see on advertising. Mm-hmm. Is that that's not an understatement? No, not at all. Writers do more than write. I think. Yeah. yeah so I actually remember in this episode we we try to. Uh, redefine what a copywriter yeah, was. Tried to give we tried a new to job give the, title. We did, yeah. We're still not caught up with that. No. But a copywriter isn't just someone who writes copy. You know, they do so much more than this. And I think copywriter potentially sets people down the wrong path. Because in reality, it's not just writing copy for tweets or IG captions in social. No. I think that's a common misconception. Caption culture's you... ruined my life, I'll be honest. So, so yeah, it's, I mean, the, proof, the proof's in the pudding there. People think that's what it is. But actually what you do, you, writers, I think we came up with like kind of creative writers or something like that. Well, think that, about right? the way it used to work. When you'd get a copywriter and an art director, they'd always come as a pair, as a creative team. And some agencies, the good ones, are going back to that. Going back to that philosophy, <laughs> why smirking? I just, I'm just satisfied. I just see Eve just absolutely rant. So I might as well put a feet <laughs> up on the table and go. Eve, have a rant. I do. I tell you what I think. I think writers, copywriters, what their job is to is communicate stories visually. Well, yeah. So that this the creative team back in the day, what would they do? They'd come up with the pitch, the storyboard, the concept, mm-hmm. and together, all they're doing is that basically the story, which is what you're saying which is the whole thing. It's the whole thing. Uh, so I think social in particular has really made us too hung up on the execution of an idea. Uh, yeah. So how it works, how it functions, which is important, but it would be absolutely nothing without that story. Yeah. it's. it's I don't think we need to see copywriters work physically either because you typically set the groundwork. Um, like you say, you know, your tone of voice document there, is, you will see it in action eventually, but you'll never see it. Well, no one else is going to read it document. except us and the brand manager, but exactly. it's, it's fueling everything else. But everything that that brand, whoever that is, does is your work as a, as, you know, as a copywriter there. So it's interesting, actually, after every episode, we kind of put a bit of promo on LinkedIn and I always kind of write my thoughts on my LinkedIn with the clip. Plug. Yeah, go and check it out. Give me a follow. <laughs> <laughs> No, but it was interesting because since, so I've nearly been a year um, since I started. uh, LinkedIn influencing. And that. But it was interesting because the copywriting post that I did was actually the most popular post I've ever done on Social Minds. And I think it was because we were talking about this sort of role of the copywriter. That's, uh, I think my caption on it was, uh, what's the most underrated function of the business? And I said it was copywriting. And the copy, I mean, you lot are you're passionate about what you do. Yeah, the thing it is, we're writers, so, much so we get in the comments and we write our feelings. Yeah, but it was interesting to me because, I, I, I mean, the I mean, like literally 99% of people well, Andrew, were like, Andrew's got quite a big presence on LinkedIn as well, which I think helped a lot. But mm. it's nice to see that people are agreeing and that yeah. it's, but also is it sad to see that so many people are, have experienced that perhaps? Yeah, yeah. yeah Industry-wide problems. Still think we need to change that title, leave. All right. So moving on to my final clip, and we've had some huge names, um, so why don't we throw Meta in there as well? We caught with Bianca Sparda, who covered everything from the rebrand of Facebook to Meta. So interesting to know. I mean, she fully, covered, she fully <laughs> covered the goss. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, take a listen. It was manic. I was really lucky to be part of it, and I was surprised how many little people we were working on a project that had so much at stake. It was a complete success. And I kind of like think that that went down due to three reasons. Like, obviously, we have our proactive messaging, which was the keynotes and everything that we work with, with the countries to to post. And it was a big effort just to aligning and coordinating that. But the other two pillars that for me is what made this a success was like our reactive messaging, for example. We had 
creative directors, we had copywriters, we had people from the comms agencies, from our community management agencies, listening, identifying opportunities from brands, from creators, from public figures, and reacting in real time creating the assets as well for these people. We managed to ship almost 1,500 responses with bespoke content, bespoke copy, and that drove over 140,000 engagement, which is something unheard of uh, when it came to a rebranding like this. Uh, we all knew that creators were, were going to be a key part in landing the message, especially for the audience that we're going after. The approach was actually teaming up with meme creators, which is not probably what, what you expect from a company like, like Meta. We divided it into different sets of creators. We wanted those that break the news. And we team up with My Therapy Says, Puberty, the secret advice, uh, St. Ox, these kind of people to tell the world about it in a way that is very authentic and genuine in their tone of voice. And then yeah. we also team up with creators that will react to this news. One of them was Angry Reactions. We also team up with Kavi Lame. He created a video where he integrated himself into the Kino with Mark Zuckerberg. That video drove 32 million views. And... I think the fact that we were more human in our approach, we were open to work with people and, and give up a lot of the ownership of that creativity and mm. making sure that they will do their own thing and speak the, the language that the audience speaks. That was a, a key of the success of this rebrand. 75 people knew about It's still ridiculous, isn't it? 75, absolutely crazy. She had a big job. She did have a big job and she did it very well. Just focusing on that 75 out of 70,000 employees again, it actually goes back to what we were talking about with TikTok, you know, in terms of working in those small concentrated teams of specialists that get the job done nice and agile. But it just goes to show you, you can, like I said, I think this is the biggest rebrand of the decade. I can't really think of They also had, um, bigger. if you remember when she was telling us, they had, so like within those 75 people, it's like no two people knew what yeah. everyone else knew. Yeah. So they were doing like a tag team or like a conveyor belt thing where it's like you did that bit and then you pass it on. And no one knows really well, like except for what's essential knowledge, what came before and what's coming after to like really prevent leaks. What stood out to me about this episode, I don't know if it's a good or a bad thing. Let's discuss. Let's debate. The way that they they partnered up with all these meme pages, and they're I not like the only it, company I've seen do this, where it's like their their goal was to control online sentiment, which when we first saw it without that knowledge from Bianca, I thought, do you know what? Fair play. Everyone's having a laugh about this, and it's not like it's nowhere near as much backlash as I thought there was going to be. And then you find out after the fact that they paid for that. I think... <laughs> What do we think? Well, is it smart or is it making everything inauthentic? Take it back to the first thing you said. You saw it and you thought, fantastic. Yeah. So we've almost ruined it for ourselves, yeah. I guess. But is it authentic that. then? Great to know it because we learn from it. And then, you know, I've implemented something similar in, in campaigns that we've done recently. I know you pay for PR. I, I do just think meme pages have the potential to be a little bit abused i'm not saying meta did it i'm saying it's a trend that seems to be getting worse but maybe but that's a discussion got, for another day they know more than anyone these are these are how you target people you yeah know, the, the reach of these pages yeah the reach of memes they're so shareable 
And if, you know, Meta know that, why wouldn't they use it? Yeah. I think when it came to partnering with specific creators, that's basically demonstrating best practice for what they want people to do on their platforms anyway. That was great. Um, yeah, it, it, it's it's maybe the meme page thing that was throwing me off. What, but... was, your, what was your favorite meme? I'll, I'll put mine out there. It was the, uh, the one with Mark Zuckerberg carrying a load of feta cheese. We <laughs> <laughs> changed it to feta. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there was some good Fantastic. ones, wasn't there, for like name changes. I just love a, I love a Zuck meme. But on a more serious note, what was really interesting about that episode was what Bianca said about um, the the markets adopting that metaverse technology that her whole job then became about selling and promoting across the international markets that Meta has, uh, and found that it was actually developing countries and those with lower incomes. Um, that we're adopting this not only faster but with more enthusiasm than richer nations. Yeah, and typically I think what we see is those nations who typically don't have as much are more willing to risk, you know, and, and go all in. And it seems like they've gone all in on Web three, and you know, actually it's paying off. Um, but yeah, really interesting, really interesting to hear um, those statistics. They were actually under NDA at the time we recorded. Uh, there will be public knowledge now, but. Yeah, some some great nuggets there from Bianca and I. Yeah, I, I mean, I always love speaking to platforms directly and they always seem to give a little bit too much away to us, which is brilliant for yeah. us and, and get all the gossip. And uh, yeah, it was definitely a, a juicy one in terms of gossip. Okay, last but not least, we are hearing from one of our very own, uh, who we had on quite recently, actually. So uh, it's Jake Thompson, who's our senior creative strategist. Uh, and he was talking a lot about the role of strategy and how it's changed over time. But he was also giving away some tidbits about, you know, our thinking here at Social Chain, how we do things. And this is one of the the nicer parts of the episode for me, um, because as Cal said, it was a rousing speech. <laughs> uh, and we were very motivated afterwards. So I hope it does the same for you. Everybody wants to do great work. And I think it is, again, that generational thing. And well, it's a wider societal thing. Like people have the luxury of the job market and we want to, like what keeps me in this role and not and going anywhere else is the work that I get to do excites me. It keeps me, it keeps me alive. That's a bit dramatic. It gets me out of bed in the morning. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I, and really it's about fulfillment. I think is a really important thing. Like obviously social media can at times be very superficial. And I talked about it before, like there's obviously things like clickbait and engagement bait and all that kind of stuff. And I think it's worth noting that, you know, as a, the person creating that and posting that, you also, you, you understand the role of that content and, you know, content like that doesn't necessarily fulfill you um, like on a deeper level. And I think what we want to yeah. do is help fulfill people and do work that has meaning. And that means that every time a client comes to us with a request um, or a, a new brief or something like that, we try and think of it from a, a real, real, really meaningful place. Like how can we actually do something interesting that's different, that pushes us, that pushes the client, that isn't just going to be a throwaway piece of content in the eyes of the consumer. Because it's, and it's not even about the consumer at that point. It's about us as individuals, as creatives, mm -hmm. as people in this industry. Like at the end of the day, we want to enjoy our work and we want to come home every day thinking, I had a bit of an impact today. And yeah. it's about, you know, framing that within the world. You know, at the end of the day, it's social media. It's not everything in the world, but at least we can be confident that the work we're doing is impacting somebody. We owe people interesting work. We owe it to our clients to make interesting work for them. We owe it to the people watching at home, audiences, 
to you know give them something entertaining on their screen but as jake was saying there we owe it to ourselves and the people in our business and our creatives to make interesting work the kind of work that you're interested in doing um and yeah keeping that sort of spark of joy and passion alive day to day at work uh when we're you know really really busy or we're run off our feet or everything's moving really quickly if we have that sort of purpose that's driving everything that we do um it just reduces the chances of feeling you know a bit listless and burnt out doesn't it so i think he, he had a really important point to make there yeah his title of creative strategist is an interesting one um as hannah montana would say it's the best of both worlds yeah well, it's, well strategy typically i mean i always use this house, house analogy i don't know if i've picked this up from somewhere i've just coined you said it. it in the episode as well but yeah, yeah it sounds i always coin it so yeah strategy is essentially the foundations of the house and then the creative is the bricks and mortar on top mm -hmm. of it right but he's essentially doing I mean, he's thinking about laying, the f because he comes from a creative background, who's then really got in the trenches with the strategy. He's laying those foundations whilst thinking what the house looks like on top, which is really clever. It's almost better because it's baked yeah. in. I don't know if minds like Jake's are a bit rarer or we need to sort of find them and dig them out because it's always been a bit of a battle, hasn't it? What's more important, creative or strategy? Mm. And actually seeing the two work together and, you know, knowing that it's, need you, you need both. They you need literally to. need both. Like, they don't work in harmony. I mean, yeah, you're not doing good work. You're probably going to go down the route of that sort of strategy playbook that we talked about for TikTok, but the bad idea. So you'd probably have a year long strategy and then your creators are coming and just not do anything mm. related to that strategy. It needs to all be tied together. If your creative and your strategy aren't tied together, then... You got big problems. <laughs> yeah, literally. I mean, you've, there's no, there's no, no real point. You know, it, it, you might well, as well it. not. You, you'd then be doing creative without the strategy because you're ignoring the strategy. If you do creative without the strategy, it's not grounded in anything, which means it's pointless. Yeah, one it, doesn't it, work without you, the look, other. You, you could have success. It, uh, there's no doubt in that you can have, but it wouldn't be consistent, and it wouldn't be, you know, just be flashed in the pan. There'd be no, there'd be no reason or why. Your strategy is a why, right? Well, let's think about a recent episode that we had on um, Ryanair, whose exactly. creative was sort of out there. You know, they were doing what they were doing. And it wasn't until Michael came in and he's actually had to put lay that strategy down. So it's like, okay, there's some really cool shit going out there, but let's, you know, put something in place that's actually guiding it. So they have a direction, they know where they're going, they know what their goals are, and there's a real purpose. And then if anything comes out of creative that they feel doesn't uh, meet that goal, make sure you're never putting stuff out and wasting time, money and resource just for the sake of it. If ultimately something that you want to create isn't helping you reach that end goal, um, you might want to do something else instead. Well, 200 episodes down and hopefully another 200 to go. Woo! Okay. Yeah. Enthusiasm. We love it. Yes. Next week, we'll be back for Social in Six. And the week after that, we'll be speaking to Social Chain's brand new, kind of new, managing director, Pete Metcalf. So make sure you don't miss that. <laughs>